0: Thanks for checking out the Indie Handshake Wrestling Podcast. My name is Paul Ponte. I am joined today by the Golden Boy, Greg Anthony. How's it going, guys? I'm doing wonderful. I'm happy to have you on the show. <laughs> uh, we just talked with Reckless Youth about uh, wrestling in Memphis, and uh, I know... You're, you're Are you from that area? Yeah, I, I live in Dyersburg, which is about 60 miles north of Memphis. Let's get started with uh, your, your life, how you got started into, into wrestling. And more, more importantly to me, the stuff I love is how you find out about the wonderful world of
1: independent wrestling. All right, So, um, you know, like I tell everybody, my, my earliest memories of life are not of a birthday cake or, or a new bike or anything like that. It's, it's actually sitting on my grandmother's knee watching professional wrestling. That's my earliest memory. And uh, so that was kind of instilled in me very early. She was a huge fan. We li- at the time we lived in Southern Illinois, so you know we got WCW or NWA, obviously WWF and World Class. You know, so she was a huge Terry Von Erich fan, and she hated Rick Flair, and <laughs> she hated all she hated all the heels and loved all the good guys. You know, uh, and she's been a fan for over seventy years, now. so. Um, from there, you know, we end up, my family ended up moving to Tennessee through um, a factory. They were transferred through a factory. And uh, we ended up in, in Tennessee here. And that's kind of how I discovered independent wrestling because, like, and I tell people this all the time, like, I went from Southern Illinois, which has some wrestling, like a little bit of wrestling. But, like, here in West Tennessee, there's, there's a weekly show every, you know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a weekly wrestling show. You know what I mean? So there was always some kind of show going on. So, like, I would go to shows at the Armory here in town. I would go to the Missoula Coliseum some. And the NWA came to Missoula Coliseum. And I got to see Sting and Muda and um, got to see a Flair and, and Dick Slater in the main event and, and things like that. So uh, for me, you know, just growing up around, my, my grandmother loved it and I loved it too. And I was just, I've always been completely enamored with it.
0: When when does it come the day that you decide? Okay, I love this thing. It's it's a lot of fun to watch, but I actually want to put my body through this, and I want to get my uh my to put my hand in that ring, you know.
1: All right, so this is an interesting story. So, um, several of us, you know, we we were teenagers, and we were backyard wrestling. Of course, this was the late nineties. Yeah. Right. So we're 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 backyard wrestling. We're doing stuff on trampolines. We're not doing anything crazy. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're as old school backyard wrestling as it could be. (laughs) You know, we weren't doing fire or, you know, barbed wire or anything like that. We were just doing pit tosses and arm drags, but just on a trampoline. So anyway, uh, at this time, Memphis Championship Wrestling was a developmental territory for the WWE. And uh, they were actually coming to our hometown uh, once a month, but they were only drawing about 30 or 40 people, Right. So my friend's dad, who is actually was a police officer in town, went up to the promoter, Terry Golden. and was like, hey, listen, my son and his friends are trying to break into business. Can you help them? Right. So Terry, being the businessman that he is, he saw an opportunity. So he booked us for what he considered a he called an intermission. Mm. Right. So we went around for the next month telling everybody, hey, we're wrestling on Memphis Chemical Wrestling. We're doing this. We're doing that. And sure enough, there was two hundred people in the building, and the intermission match was actually a semi-main event. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, but, but like it was, it was little stuff. Like he still protected the business in a way because obviously we weren't ready to do anything like that. So he kept. We actually had our own locker room away from all the boys. You know what I mean? Which was, you know, at the time you had William Regal and r Truth and Daniel Bryan. And Reckless was there. Actually, Reckless was. He was the only guy to come over to our locker room and say, "Hey guys, keep your head up. I'm glad you're trying to get in the business. Keep up the hard work. You know that kind of." Thing. So I always that always kind of stuck with me with reckless. You know, he was he was he went out of his way to make two two kids feel welcome. You know,
0: that's amazing. Yeah, I love stories like that where uh, you know. It's something that, that's you know, he might not even remember it. He might not even know about it, but, like, it's something that sticks with you. You know what I mean? And it probably affected how you treated other people that were up and coming in the business later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like I said, he was very cordial and just, I, I was always because, you know, the reason I found you guys was because I, I listened to you know his podcast and you guys. And, you know, I was just a huge fan of his. I mean, he literally was the first internet darling. You know what I mean? Like, he was the first guy that had, his wrestling buzz was created primarily from, you know, the internet. You know what I mean? Where everyone else was, you know, WWF or WCW or something like that. He was the first guy. So, like, when I was getting all the mags, you know what I mean? That's, that's who I always saw, like, King of the Indies, you know, reckless shoes. So, it was, it was fun when he actually got sent to Memphis. I know he didn't like his time in Memphis, but, you know, uh, I think he did some, some pretty good stuff.
0: You're, you're doing stuff from Memphis, and then eventually, like, do you end up getting like an like a full trainer? Like what what ends up happening?
1: Yeah, so what happens is uh Minnesota Championship Wrestling ended up losing its developmental deal and it pretty much folded, right? So then we caught on with a local company and that's where we finished our, our training there. We found a guy named Rude from Naughty by Nature. He's a former, you know, NWA, mid South tag Team Champion, stuff like that. They did a lot of stuff with the NWA. Um so he, he was the initial trainer. But we've had over the years I've had him, Dr. Tom, uh, Bill Dundee, you know, Sir Mo. I mean, there's just been a ton of people that have had a hand in training. In the years.
0: And what was that training style like? Was it very old school?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, the, it was always like, it was very hard hitting. You know, like, when I got in wrestling, I thought I knew everything about professional wrestling before I got in. You know, and I realized how little I knew once I stepped in the ring. You know what I mean? I thought everything was just you know, light as a feather. You know what I mean? That's what I thought. That I realized it was actual contact involved. You know what I mean? Like, the first time I gave him a tackle, I knocked myself down because there was so much contact involved, I wasn't expecting it, and I bumped at him. You know what I mean? Not on purpose. <laughs> yeah. You know? So that was the kind of one thing, that's one thing I really took away from Rude was, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is legit. Let's, you hit people, but you hit them in a the safe place. You know?
0: How about the other, uh, I, I like, always like to talk about, the the social aspect of wrestling too, uh, the the show is called the indie handshake because uh, as I was always involved with indie wrestling, we, we would always notice you know every time a wrestler shook shook our hands, uh, it was always you know the the very light, oh hello right. how's it going yeah so what about like the social aspect the cues of like hey make sure if there's veterans around you 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 know you say what's up to everyone you talk to everyone if you have a match with a veteran you know they're gonna be the one
1: calling it like all that stuff. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. It, it was trial by error. You know, we we made a lot of mistakes with that kind of stuff because we just didn't know anything. Better, you know what I mean? Like, I I told the story the other day, but, like, um, so I had just got started. I was probably left in a year in the business, and I was on a Friday night show. And these two guys that were on the Friday night show were going to have a match, a hair versus hair match the next night. Right? So they're in the locker room on Friday night going, well, you know, I, I'm not going to lose. And the other guy's like, well, I'm not going to lose either. They were just joking around with each other, but I didn't catch on to that. I really thought they were serious back and forth saying, you know, I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to lose. Right. So the next day I told the promoter, <laughs> I was like, I was like, Hey, listen, they were talking about last night, how they're not, <laughs> they're not going to do this. They're not going to do
2: that. Oh my god! So like,
1: everyone was pissed off for like hours at a time. And eventually somebody had said something to me about it. I said, Oh, I'm sorry. That was me. I am my fault." You know, I just owned up to it like immediately because I had no idea what I was doing anyway. Uh.
2: Right?
1: And they just all kind of just, like shook their head, like ah, stupid kid. You know, what I mean, they should have beat my ass really, but I mean, <laughs> you know, they they actually gave me a pass.
0: <laughs> you had a stint with the NWA as well, so let's go in from where you're there, where you're at there, and then kind of like just how the career progresses. Like, when did you start feeling like okay? This is something that I'm going to do. This is something that I'm good at. This is something that, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, uh, uh, I'm willing to put myself through this. Yeah,
1: you know, like pretty much that first match in MCW, you know, I was tough. You know what I mean? Because that was the first time like in front of a crowd like that, obviously. And, you know, even though we had very little psychology to the match, you know, everything we did in the match was good. Does that make sense? Like, everything Mm. looked for us and everything, and we actually got a lot of positive feedback from, like, William Regal and and guys like that that were there seeing it, especially since at that time we hadn't been trained, you know? So, they were really um, supportive in that sense, and I always had a lot of supportive people around me going, hey, listen, you know, you've got something, you know what I mean? Like, you, because I, like I said, I've been a wrestling fan my whole life, so there's just certain things you didn't have to explain to me. I knew what wrestling was supposed to look like, and what it was supposed to feel like and things like that and i was just mimicking i was doing storytelling and psychology before i even actually knew what they were because i was just mimicking all the stuff that i'd seen throughout my entire life you know what i mean i would i would take a big guy and i put him in the corner and i chop him and have no sell like you know flare and luke you know what i mean just because that's what i Oh, that makes sense you know bing and then he would no sell and i go oh you know that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it always all that kind of stuff always kind of resonates so, yeah, with the when we first got started um, with the local promotion, it ended up being an NWA promotion. It was NWA Mid-South. And actually the first title I ever won was the NWA Southern Junior Heavyweight Championship, which ends up being, you know, established in 1939. You know what I mean? So that was kind of a big deal for me at the time because I, all I wanted to be was an NWA champion. You know what I mean? And I got, got an opportunity to do that. And then, like, from there, you know, the guy that actually was booking the junior heavyweight division at the time in the NWA, that was my promoter, you know. So, like, on the top ten lists, he would do a top ten list for the website all the time. And there were some times where I was ranked, ranked ahead of Juice and Liger. <laughs> you know and i was, and <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Every, everything, in my, everything in my career, like, every time it happens, it's kind of like a pinch me moment. Like, I can't believe it happened to me. I, I really... I've said over the years that I'm the pound for pound and inch for inch the best of the best, but I'm really the best of the blessed because I've been right. blessed to do so many great things it seems like you're you know the wrestling
0: came pretty easily to you uh, I like that you said uh you you're doing psychology without knowing about it. it's kind of like uh playing guitar and you don't know uh about music theory but you just know like this sounds good and so you play it and you're like it turns out oh you're playing exactly the right notes in the right key that he, but you had no idea you were doing it so uh,
1: i like yeah, that see, my 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 son is very musical he's starts he's fixing to be 14 years old and i'm sitting here looking at his piano right now and to me that piano is just a box you know what i mean but to him you know he can make you know a world of music out of it you know what i mean mm-hmm. he has that gift where he can just hear something and play you know and that's kind of what I, I feel like I have the same gift when it comes to wrestling. I feel like Neo at the end of the Matrix, <laughs> you know, when he sees everything in code, that's how I see professional wrestling.
0: And how about, uh, besides the physical aspect, how about like, you know, crafting character, that kind of thing? Uh, how easily did that come to you?
1: Um, I was pretty much, and we hear about this all the time, you know, the most successful guys are the guys with themselves with the volume turned all the way up, Right. And that's kind of always who I was anyway. Like, I knew I wanted to be a wrestler. wrestler. Like, I, I, was, I was always drawn to the seamless Southern heels like Flair and DiBiase and Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard. And, you know, you know, that's just that whole spectrum of guys right there. And I didn't know why until later, but that's really what I gravitated to. And that's what I ended up pretty much being. Speaking of,
0: speaking of Bobby Eaton, let's talk about Bobby Eaton for a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I mean I got a huge opportunity To, to tag with Beautiful Bobby Eaton For two years um, What had happened was He was moving to Arkansas Which is just a you know, stone's throw away for me And he was actually going to do uh, He was going to do a tag team with a kid in Arkansas And he was going to do a tag team with me in Tennessee And then the guy in Arkansas Somebody got in his ear And told him it wasn't a good idea I don't know who the hell would do it But like Told him it wasn't a good idea, so he passed. So then I we ended up just being Midnight Gold, us together throughout the south, and we would be booked, you know, as the stars on the show. We would come work the main event, work with the local guys, and it was just it was just a really great time. And our manager was Brian Thompson, so we had that Midnight Express Jim Cornette kind of feel. I always say we're we're Midnight Express with Jason.
0: Mm. There you go, the extended Midnight
1: Express family. Yeah, ex- the extended universe of the Midnight. Express. But yeah. like even there were times, you know, sometimes I'd be working with guys that um I'd been working with for, you know, eight, ten years and we'd be in the ring going and I look at Bobby on the corner and Bobby looked like it was nineteen eighty five because he didn't want to be the weak link in that match. He still had, you know, the desire to go and even though his body couldn't do some of it anymore, he still wanted to be that guy. So then I tag him in and then all of a sudden it was like it was in Greensboro. You know what I mean? Like and he was going, you know what I mean? And I'm just sitting on the apron, like, you know, jaw dropped, like watching one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, you know, go to school. It's great.
0: That's amazing to hear because uh, I'll tell you, as someone who has seen um, some, some, some bigger names who have fallen from grace, do some indie shows, uh, sometimes, you know, they're only in their 40s or 30s and they're already putting it in. And that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> so I love hearing that stuff.
1: Yeah, and Bobby too, and this is the great thing about Bobby, like I said, we tagged for two years, and he had never he never allowed me in two years to take a pin. You understand? Every promoter would be like, "Hey, you know, you mind if we beat Greg?" And Bobby would pipe it and go, "No, no, we're not beating Greg. We're beating me." You know what I mean? He would never let me take a pin. He said, "This was this was an opportunity for me to get noticed and get seen, and people would start talking about me. It wasn't going to hurt him to get pinned." So the, the the goal was to keep me as strong as possible through that the entire run.
0: Wow. Okay that's it so how many,
1: how many guys would do that
0: yeah that not many that's for sure uh yeah. and how far into into your career what did what, did you start teaming with them
1: uh it was like eight years
0: eight years
2: okay yeah
1: so i had i'd already i've primarily uh, obviously been a singles wrestler but like i you know um at that point i'd actually been a heavyweight champion and been main event and a couple things things like that and it was just one of those things where the opportunity came up and i was like well i can't pass that up so i'm gonna be attacking and I really took it under myself to learn more about tag team wrestling, obviously, during that time. So.
0: What kind of advice, what kind of stuff do you get from someone like Bobby Eaton?
1: Uh, well, I mean, the thing with him was he, he called me the captain of Midnight Gold. Right? So he would let me put stuff together. And every once in a while, he'd have a question like, you know, hey, why are we doing this or why are we doing that? And once I explained my thought process to him, he was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, he, he let me do this. So really, it was more, he really instilled a lot of confidence in me as far as my, just being an overall worker, you know, um, was concerned. Because, you know, one time we were talking on the phone and we were talking about just random stuff. I think I was asking him a question. And then he, he just stops in the middle and goes, you know, Greg, I, I don't want you to ever get frustrated about not being anywhere, you know, bigger than you are. Because, like, if this was 1985, you'd be right with us making hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know what I mean? And and for Bobby Eaton to give me the rub, saying I could run with those guys, you know, that that meant the world. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so you kind of touched on it a little bit uh, there. You mentioned before uh, when we were chatting before uh, you came on the show uh, that you make a living in pro wrestling now. Uh, So I'm wondering, for someone who's successfully doing that, because a lot of of the people who watch this show tend to be workers. Uh, So I'm curious, what is your advice your kind of you know ethos for like making a living in independent pro wrestling especially these days.
1: Yeah, well, okay, there's there's several components to that. One would be um, you know, you have to learn to live within your means. You know what I mean? That's something there's a there's a business guru that I that I follow that he's big on this. like why are you driving a fifty thousand dollar vehicle when you can get around in a twenty thousand dollar You know what I mean? Why are you doing this when you can pay cash for that? You know what I mean? Like he's all about toning everything down. Do you need, you know, a five bedroom house or do you just need two? you know what I mean? Like being realistic about this is how much money I can make doing what I love versus I have to go to a job. I hate to get this, you know what I mean? I much rather would do what I love for a living. I wake up every day and think about professional wrestling now. And it's, it's the most wonderful life I can, (laughs) that I can imagine because that's what I wake up. So for me, it's, And also, like, you know, I'm a promoter and a booker, and, you know, and so our thing is, I try to create as many revenue streams as possible to filter to the bottom line. So, you know, even though, you know, obviously the door, obviously concessions, obviously merchandise, you know, uh, training, um, you know, also, you know, I sell like, I I have a guy that makes championship titles for me, I I take those and I, I resell those, design those and have them resold, and that all adds up to the bottom line and allows me to do what I do.
0: Okay, yeah. So you, you make sure you have, uh, you have it coming from all different directions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't just... There's no way to make money in wrestling just off the board or just off the booking anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and we're really, you know... Um, you know, one guy I talked to that was making a living and wasn't in WWE or anything like that, you know, he, he told me his merchandise was 70% of his income. And that really opened my eyes. I've never really been able to crack. The merchandise thing, like he has, but it, like it's still something. It's still something towards my eventual goal. Yeah, there's a lot of guys online,
0: uh, guys who I'm not saying aren't aren't good workers. A lot of them are, but I'm saying a lot of them have kind of crafted like online personas that kind of like dwarf, like like a guy like Danhausen, right? Dude, dude can rock in like Ring of Honor and do all that stuff. But like, I'm sure there's like a, a good percentage of people who love him on Twitter who have never seen a match of his.
1: I've, I've never never actually seen a match. I just, I don't like, I don't like gimmicks like that. I don't like things that poke fun at wrestling, I guess. I guess. Okay. So like, I understand. Like, he's, he's, a, barely, he, he's a very entertaining guy. So it's not, it's not, you know. So I think he would be much better served on Saturday Night Live or something like that than sometimes a wrestling show.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it all just depends on, you know, the style of promotion all that stuff to me, too. I mean, like, you know, like you're saying, if he showed up, you know, at NWA, you'd probably be like, this is a little confusing right now. (laughs) Uh, But so let's get into a little bit of a. you know, everyone talks about Memphis wrestling. Everyone's like, "Well, what is?" And they say it's hard to define the Memphis style and all that. How would you define it? How would you? Uh, is it still around today? And how do you think it is incorporated into modern wrestling at all?
1: Um, well, Memphis wrestling is really was a really blood and guts kind of territory. It was, it was wasn't scientific wrestling. It was punch kick. You know, it was heated angles. I think that's the, the lasting legacy of Memphis wrestling was they created so many of these these really unique angles that um, still live on to this day, especially in our area. You know, we're always going to be um, compared to or, you know, put up against Memphis wrestling. So, like, when you have Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler and, uh, you know, Austin Idol and Jimmy Valiant and Jimmy Hart and, like, all the characters that came through there, like, Memphis was... Memphis didn't pay very well. So, Memphis... Didn't have a lot of guys that were long-term guys there. You know, no one really spent three, four, or five years besides Lawler, Dundee, and guys like that, right? Uh, but guys would pop in and out because, hey, if if it's four weeks till I got to be in, um, you know, your area, <laughs> you know, if it's four weeks till I got to be in San Francisco, then let, let me spend three of those weeks in Memphis. You know, what I mean, make a little bit of money on the way. You know that kind of thing. Okay. So, like, a lot of people just popped in and out. But, like, the Memphis style itself is, is you know, it was it was brawling before brawling was, like, a huge thing. You know what I mean? Like, they were doing tables and chairs and things like that, too. But it was all within the confines of this is this the sporting concept, you know?
0: When you go into – when you're – basically starting out and it's a WWE developmental territory, which is just like a surreal experience. Uh, Obviously, you're a big fan. Uh, You got a great amount of uh, stuff behind you, some goodies behind you uh, on the old wall there. So what is your headspace at the time? And when it goes away as a developmental thing, how much of you was kind of like, oh no, like this was the chance? Nah, for me...
1: and. For me, especially at the time, I was just, you know, happy as a lark to be in a wrestling. You know what I mean? That's really what it was. Like, I, I wasn't looking at it. I never thought I would mount to anything professional wrestling. You know what I mean? So the fact that I've gotten to do a lot of things I do, like I said, I'm very blessed to do it. So I've never really been like, oh, you know, I, I am upset about certain things. Like, you know, I've had opportunities to go to Japan and, and be different kinds of champions and things like that that didn't come to fruition because, you know, Backstabbing and politics and things like that, and I, I get upset about that kind of stuff. But as far as like never going to WWE, that's not really been a huge thing for me. Because like, like I can tell everybody when I started, like in the early two thousands, um, WWE was looking for guys that worked like me, but they were looking for guys that were six foot two, barefoot, with a you know jacked with a with a, you know what I mean. I can't grow. I'm five foot eight on a good day. You know what I mean? So there's no way there's no way to do that. By the time they got to guys where they wanted to hire guys that were smaller, well then they wanted to work, you know, this acrobatic style that I don't do. So it's kind of like I was I was never in the right boat at the right time, but that's mm. that's fine. Like I'm never uh, I'm never going to you know be upset about anything like that. I mean, to me, like I've done um, more than I ever thought I would do, and if, if I got to go back and tell ten year old me. Hey, you got to do, you got to tag with Bobby Eaton. You got to do this. You got to do that. Then I would be, I would be ecstatic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like wrestling is one of those things where, like, if you don't love it, if you're only in it for, you know, to be on WrestleMania and to to make this much and do this much, I think like you know you're in for a very very rude awakening.
1: <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, I like I said we train guys here. And, like, I get three, five messages a week about people wanting to train. And then very few of those people actually follow through. But nine out of ten people that actually come to my training facility and train one day never come back. You know what I mean? And it's not that I'm being overly hard on them and trying to run them off, but I want them to know this is a hard business. That first day is hard on them, and either you're cut out for it or you're not. So that's a point of pride with us.
0: Well say, remember those old – uh they were talking about the the heart dungeon and they said, Stu Stu would literally just stretch you for like hours and then be like, so is this what you want? Like, this is what you want for sure. And then, you know, that's how long it took. And then the same with, uh, a lot of guys out here were were like that when they were training. uh, Michael modest talked about his, his training was basically like, that. they're basically like, let's, they beat the shit out of you until, and then they were like, if you come back the next day, then, Hey, maybe you'll, maybe you'll last.
1: Yes. uh and I, and I wish sometimes it could be like that because there's been some guys that come in that I, I wish I could just break their leg and send them on their way and see if they ever come back. But, um, you know, nowadays, everyone's, you know, they're going to, if you touch them in the least wrong, they're going to call the police and press the target. So it becomes one of those things like for the betterment of professional wrestling, I think I'll stick around.
0: You go in now you're training people. What is, uh, what is your mindset? What did you, what did you bring from your training that you do as an instructor, and what are some of the things that you modified or don't do that you learned early on?
1: So, I um, my stuff is a, is really like a melting pot. I created a curriculum, an actual curriculum that I follow for my trainings. and like I took a little bit of you know from Dr. Tom, I took a little bit of Ruth from Army Financial, like I did. I took a lot from a guy named Motley Cruz who trained a lot in this area. Uh, I took a lot from um, Lance Storm, like, Rick Rogers, you know, guys like that, like guys that, you know, I think really, you know, have the right mindset for professional wrestling too. I, I took a lot of that kind of stuff and just made it like a big melting pot of, of what I think needs to be trained upon, right? Um, as far as like what I don't do or what I've changed, like I know a lot of people are really, you know, um, they use a lot of roles. You know, they do left shoulder roll, right shoulder roll, frontwards, backwards, you know, all the kind of roles. Like, I only teach left shoulder roll because I want everything I teach to be match function. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, I, what I basically, what I do is I teach them to do left shoulder roll, and I, if they ever, I, then every once in a while, I'll go, hey, do a right shoulder roll, and they can do it. But just because they understand the mechanics from doing the left, right? So instead of me teaching four different types of rolls and spending four weeks doing that, I teach one role and I think they they know how to do the rest, right? Just because, like I said, I want everything to be match function. Mm-hmm. I think this
0: kind of goes into, because I used to teach guitar, right? Uh, and sometimes people want to learn stuff and it isn't necessarily my bag. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, they're like, oh, I want to learn how to play this song. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'll, t- I'll teach you. But um, so how do you, uh, how do you do that as a trainer? You, you know, if so, you have someone who wants to be a little bit more spot heavy or wants to do some different stuff than, than is your bag. So what, what is your mindset when it comes to that?
1: Well, luckily, I've had um, you know, there's been guys that have their own thought processes about professional wrestling before they ever get to me. But once they get to me and they hear mine and they hear what we're doing and how we present professional wrestling, how we want it to be, you know, they, they, they actually come around. They're like, you know, that actually does make sense. And that is the right way to do it. So we haven't had a lot of instances where people were like, well, no, 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 no I want to do this. You know, it's, it's not really like that. A lot of them have really gone. It's more like, you know, I opened their eyes like, oh, I didn't know wrestling was actually like this. And now that you pointed this out to me, I, I completely understand what you're talking about. Like, obviously, I'm a huge proponent of good versus evil, you know, bad versus good, God versus the devil. I think that's what professional wrestling is always going to be in its best form when portraying. When, when, so, like, for me, you know, when guys say, oh, I want to be a tweener. Motherfucker, there, there is no such thing as a tweener. You know what I mean? There's, there's babyface in this field. The only time you're a tweener is when you're in between switching to one or, one or the other. But, like, that's only a couple weeks at, at the most, right? So, for the most part, you're, you're either going to be a babyface or a heel. Like, oh, what about Stone Cold Steve Austin? Okay, he was a babyface. He yeah. was the biggest babyface probably in wrestling history. He had his own moral code, Sure, you know he, you know hit women with chairs and stuff like that. But he was still a baby face. they still cheered him,
0: and he still yeah. had a reason for doing it. Yeah, how are you going to boo the guy who drinks beer and kicks the shit out of his boss?
1: Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a sounds like a dream to everyone who's watching. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and how far? How do you? How much into character stuff do you get into? Let's say with the more advanced students that you have. Uh, do you? Do you, do you help them craft their own character? Do you kind of imprint something? And then when they're starting out, uh, like out here, uh, guys who just are about to start their first match or whatever, they kind of get saddled with a random gimmick. In the, <laughs> okay. So like, they'll be like the third version of a guy named White Trash or something. Like, you know what I mean? It'll be like, and then eventually they'll get their own gimmick later. But what do you like to do when it, when it comes to guys who are ready to start wrestling?
1: So what I normally do is I actually start them out in a mask gimmick. Because um, for me, like, if they can learn to sell without using their face, you know what I mean? It, then it's going to be a lot easier for them when we eventually take them out of the mask. Right? And also because whatever gimmick we eventually go with, you know, obviously in the, in the beginning, they're not going to be that good. Right? So, like, this gives them time to learn and time to make mistakes and things like that. And then when it's time for their actual gimmick, we come up with an angle to where it it bleeds into. You know, we had one kid, you know, he was, um, he was the eternal flame. (laughs) And uh, I made him come out to Buster Point Dexter's hot, hot, hot. Right. And it was, and he, you got to know this kid, but he was absolutely like a heel to the core. You know what I mean? Like, but I made him revert and do that because I knew that's what he needed to do just to learn how to, you know, learn how to do something different. You know what I mean, and then once he was the Eternal Flame for a year, year and a half, however long it was, we did an angle where he lost the mask and he turned heel, and now he's doing what he what he was meant to do. But we we had that policy time for that, you know. So yeah, I come up with most I come up with most everyone's gimmick, you know, because like to me it's like I have 21 years of experience, and I want uh, to use that to help you not make the same mistakes that maybe I did or someone else. You know, what I mean, you may spend six years trying to look for something that works. Well, I'm going to give you something that I think can work for you now, based on w- what I've seen you train with over the last, you know, six months to a year.
0: You mentioned being in the business, you know, 21 years. It's that's no, uh, it's nothing to shake a stick at. That is that is a great amount of time in wrestling. Uh, you've seen a lot of the, the ebbs and flows of of wrestling, especially in the indies and the big, you know, the big everything styles, everything like that. Uh, you seem like a more old school guy, but is there anything that you felt like you have morphed and changed as the times have gone?
1: Um, well, yeah, I mean, just, just my thought process as a promoter has changed um, from my very beginning because, like, you know, when you're just a wrestler, you just think in terms of being a wrestler. When you're just a booker, you think in terms of just being a booker. But when you're a promoter, it really comes down to dollars and cents. And if you're a promoter that's spending your own money, <laughs> to promote a show then the decisions become a lot clear you understand mm. like if it does not make me money then why would i do why would i pay this guy x amount of dollars when he's not going to draw me x amount at all you understand it really comes down to it really makes it very very black and white you know i i remember telling i was a booker for for several companies before i eventually had my own company and i remember telling one of my promoters hey listen we need to guarantee the guys this much money on everything. I need this budget to do this, and you know he argued with me for a while, and eventually we did it. But when I became a promoter, I understood: hey, a lot of stuff needs to be off the door. You know what I mean? If the door only making X amount of dollars, and I can't pay it over, it. you know what I mean? So a lot of stuff has to be figured out off the door, especially like the old school. I always tell the guys: like, you don't want me to go to the old school uh, booking payoffs, which was you know, uh, the boys got thirty-two percent of the door. <laughs> right? And then the main event got half that. The main event was 16%, and then the other 16% went to the rest of the crew, right? So, like, if, if I went through that, guys would be making next to nothing. You know what I mean? So, at least I'm guaranteeing them something. You know, wrestling is a, it's, it's a big
0: camaraderie thing. You know, you're sharing locker rooms, you're sharing the road, you're doing all this stuff. Your friends, you're friends, you know, you become brothers in arms, basically, with these guys that you, that you run the road with. So, when you become a booker or a promoter, how does that affect certain friendships or relationships with people who are like, like you said, dollars and cents, right? You got a guy who's nice guy. Everything's great about him. And now, you know, do you get heat if, if a guy's like, how come you're not booking me,
1: man? Like, what the hell? Like, I thought we were friends. Really, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've encountered that a lot. Especially, like, when I started being in main events or being champions and, and, and stuff like that, and I started booking and promoting stuff like that. It's always somebody that has something to say. You know what I mean? Like you can't make everyone happy and I'm not going to try to, you know what I mean? Like my, like I said, at the end of the day, it is my company making money. So, and my company has always been in the black. You know what I mean? Like every year we're in the black because I have a budget. I stick to it and we go from there. So like, yeah, lots of guys are like, Oh, why don't you book me your lunch? And I'm like, for us too, a lot of it is so many guys have been so oversaturated in the same area. You know what I mean? Like if I can, if I can book you on a Saturday night, I tell guys all the time, like, if I book you, you're you're like my Big Mac, and what that means is, like, if you want a Big Mac, where do you have to go? McDonald's. Yeah, yeah right? McDonald's. You, can't a, you can't get a Big Mac at Taco Bell or Arby's or you know Burger King or anywhere else. You have to go to McDonald's to get an actual Big Mac. So, like, if I'm booking you, I want people to pay to see you at my show. I don't want you. Down the road next week, or over here on Thursday, so they can just they can just wait and pay and watch you there. You know what I mean? Like, why would I do that? To me, that's counterproductive.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying.
1: And what about?
0: Uh, I, I like to say I like this too. The the inverse of that. Uh, you got guys. You know, you know, you don't get along with everyone. Guys, you know that you never got along with whatever. But now you're booking stuff. Now you're paying people. All of a sudden, do people ever come out of the woodwork being like, "Hey, man, how's it going"? I'd love to you know, the guys that all of a sudden are your friend.
1: Oh, yeah. There, there's guys that, you know, that would knock me for years when I, was a, when I was a wrestler or whatever. And then when I became a promoter and had a little bit of connections, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, can I get on this? Or can I get on that? Or blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, it's all politics. I completely understand it. You know, I'm just, I'm just up front with guys. Like, you know, I used to book for uh, Championship Wrestling of Arkansas. And, like, that was a pretty big show over there. And, like, lots of guys always wanted on in. I just tell them, like, listen, we've got a core group of guys already. uh, But, you know, I'll put you on the list to fill a spot. You know what I mean? Like, and if it ever comes up, you know, but I I can't make any promises. So tell me a bit about your promotion now.
0: I want to know how that came about. What made you decide, you know, to do it on your own, that kind of thing?
1: So, Here in Dyersburg, I did not wrestle in Dyersburg for probably about seven or eight years. And the reason I didn't was because I got labeled like a Dyersburg guy. Like I was never going to get out of Dyersburg, right? So I decided I'm not going to do that. So I I went out and traveled and did what I was supposed to do. Meanwhile, though, you know, I still live in Dyersburg. So like when I would go out uh, and tell people, hey, I'm a professional wrestler, uh, people will go. Really, you're you're a professional wrestler. You do that hillbilly redneck, you know, you know shit like that. And um, it really kind of, it really bothered me because that was the reputation professional wrestling had in this area. Because there have been a lot of drugs, a lot of you know drinking, a lot of you know pedophile stuff, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff in this area. So, like for me, it was I'm going to clean that up. You understand that the whole the whole purpose to me starting my own promotion was it's time for us to take back what the business actually is you know so um, and I think we've done a really good job over the last seven years of, of cleaning up that image when people think of professional wrestling now they think of pro wrestling in south and they think of the the good that we do in the community and you know how we're family friendly and you know we do birthday parties for kids and you know we just just an endless cycle of, of things because we want to be as much a part of this community as
0: anything else. I like that. I like that you decided to uh, turn something that you love and uh, kind of bring even more positivity out of it like in your own community. You know, that, that is, it's, 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 it's tough because like you said, it's a, it's a dollars and cents thing, but at the same time, you want people to realize that you care about where you're at.
1: Yeah. And like I have, I have like 25 sponsors the show, you understand? Like, I, I know you've been around. Like, have you ever heard of a show that had that many sponsors?
0: Not at all. You know, no
1: like, Yeah, like I told someone the other day. Like, if I heard someone had five or ten, I would be impressed. You know, I mean, here we are with twenty five, and that's really because some of the people are people that I've known, you know, a lot of my life, and from from living here. And some people are just wrestling fans, and some people are just they see the passion in my eyes when I talk about professional wrestling. And they know that the money's going to a good place to do something good. You know what I mean? And that's my my whole pitch is that we're a family-friendly professional wrestling. You can bring your 7-year-old daughter or your 7-year-old grandmother, and you're not going to have any issues with us. You know what I mean? So that's been a huge selling point for all of
0: us. All right, brother. It is time for the Take It Home segment. I have a list of questions here we're going to go over. Feel free to take as long as you want. If Andre the Giant is the eighth wonder of the wrestling world, what are your seven wonders of the wrestling world? The seven people you say,
2: this is wrestling to me.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Let's see. Um, Luthez. Jack Briscoe. Terry Funk. Mm, it's all got to be before Andre or is that going to be after? Andre? Oh, even after. Yeah, that's fine. Uh. Let's- I would, you know, Shawn Michaels is, to me, one of the, you know, he's, he's my goat now. Um, I used, you know, I used to like Flair, but we had an issue with Flair in Arkansas, so he's kind of been on my shit list, but I'll still put him on there. <laughs> um, and then from there, let's say Arn Anderson and Bobby.
2: All right. Well,
0: great list. Love that. Um, what are some of your favorite road stories in wrestling?
1: Uh, so we were, I was booking for a show in Illinois, and I took a carload of guys from Tennessee up to Illinois to to do the show. And uh, we got done with the show, and we needed something to eat. So we went to like a Dairy Queen there in town and went to the drive-thru, right? Well, my buddy, Poker Face, he was, he was riding shotgun. All right, so Poker Face, hey, tell the lady, hey, make sure you give us napkins, right? Well, sure enough, we pull away from the window, no napkins in the back, right? Poker face loses his shit. <laughs> he starts cussing and ranting. This motherfucking bitch starts getting out of the car and stuff like that. He gets out of the van, goes to walk in the building, walks right into the window.
2: <laughs> oh shit.
1: Talks his glasses sideways, lands on the ground. By the time he got in there, he couldn't be mad anymore. So he just had it for napkins. You know, and we're all dying. We've we're, we all fell out the van and, and basically land on the concrete lap.
0: I love the the Memphis tradition of uh, get freaking out at the Dairy
1: Queen. Yeah, yeah, That's, that's a good point too. <laughs> the Jim he Cornette, hot. he was he was Cornette hot about it too.
0: <laughs> uh, I love that. Uh, I consider wrestling to be a very creative thing, besides a uh, very physical thing. Uh, besides wrestling, what do you like to do creatively?
1: Uh, I mean, wrestling really is my obviously my my, my number one focus, but you know I've. I've got ideas for movies and songs and, you know, just, I just got endless stuff. I'm, I'm a very creative person. I'm a huge, I'm a movie buff too. So, you know, I've got over a thousand movies, you know, and things like that. So, um, and I've, I've, you know, I used to write articles and stuff like that. So, I mean, wrestling articles, but I've always thought about doing a novel too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Just when you're a creative person, I think that you, you just run the gambit. You know what I mean? What it is, but with professional wrestling, that's really been, I always can say I, I consider professional wrestling the most beautiful form of storytelling that there is. You understand? Like, I like it more than movies. I like it more than music. I like it more than anything else because I'm a wrestling fan. If you don't like that kind of stuff, then you're not a wrestling fan. You're a cinematic fan or whatever it may yeah. be. So for me, it's for me, it's all about um, professional wrestling
0: uh speaking of uh just a random tangential question now uh what's your favorite wrestling movie
1: hmm I, you know ready to rumble for some reason like it was i went it all of the theater and it's just one of those things like i just it just resonated with me we were all crazy fans like that especially near that time right we had, we had really just got into business when all that kind of happened um so yeah that that still resonated. i love it's so quotable i mean like you know, French toast dipped in shit, you know, <laughs> me and my buddies, we, we quote stuff like that all the time to each other, so, I mean, uh, Ready Rumble, obviously, you know, like the wrestler and things like that, like, I didn't like the wrestler originally when I watched it, because I really wasn't impressed with it, because I had already seen that one, right, but then once I realized how well they captured it, then I became more of a fan, you understand, but like, and first I was like,
0: well, "I you that shit all the time." <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. I thought about that because I done like websites and like photography here for indie promotions, and a lot of them do like conventions where they invite a lot of big name stars from the past. And then, like, when he just walks into that like ballroom, and everyone has their fanny packs, and there's like five people in line, I'm like, "Oh my god!" Like, I had like, <laughs> I was like, "I, I, I've been here. I've been to this place. This is so crazy." And to me, like. <clears throat> I don't know how big of a wrestling fan, you know, the director was, but apparently, if he wasn't, damn, he did a lot of research because yeah. that was very well done. Um, also, weirdly, uh, I don't know, I don't know how it is uh, in, in where you're at, um, but I feel like no one does a double axe handle anymore, and I feel and both both Ready to Rumble and uh, the wrestler prominently feature an axe handle, and yet no one seems to do it anymore. I never see it on TV, and it bums me out because I love a double axe handle. <laughs> so,
1: so. Uh- a couple of months ago we had a guy in from Kansas City right and uh he came up to me after the show and he said he said I was just telling them on the way here I went over all these all these spots and all these finishes I don't ever see anymore and you did every single one of them on your show tonight. right and it was like he was like kudos to the old school stuff so, because we like we do a lot of you know just O'Connor you know small package you know stuff like that you know and uh Roll through cross bodies and you know stuff that you just don't see anymore. Like you said double act handle. Well, we have guys that do double act you know handles. I mean, so I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we're completely. All, I tell people all the time, I'm like when you come here, it's like 1985.
0: Yeah, there you go. But in a, in the in the best way possible, and not with the fashion. Uh, here we go. Oh, I like the fashion too. Uh, there you go. <laughs> um,
1: What is your favorite mover hold that you do not use? Uh. Well, my finisher is actually a variation of the stunner, but I, the stunner to me is like the greatest finisher that and the super kick, obviously, before the young bucks got a hold of it. <laughs> but those two finishes to me were like the epitome of that's what a finish would be. You can hit it on everybody, it can come out of nowhere, it, it creates drama to it, you know. So, so to me, that was that. I, sometimes I use super kick, but very, very, very rarely. We actually, we actually banned it at my show for a while. <laughs> like it, it went seven months. We didn't have a single super kick on our show. And then some kid that was in, we didn't tell him. And like he super kicked somebody in the match. We're like, ah
2: oh.
1: <laughs> there goes the seven month streak. So. <laughs> All right, uh, finish the
0: sequence for me. Drop down, leapfrog. <laughs> Get it again. There you go. You know, certain shows, um, right now you have a four more family from the atmosphere, but I'm sure you've been to other shows where there's some drinking, there's some rowdiness, all that stuff. What are some crazy fan interactions you've had?
1: Oh, man. We're... So, me and um, another, you know, I, like I said, I was blessed to have good tag team partners with Beautiful Body Eaton, but another one of my tag team partners was The Loverboy, Matt Riviera, who is famous from, you know, uh, VH1, you know, uh, Megan Wants a Millionaire, and and things like that, but he's also an NWA World Tag Team Champion. Anyway, so we're tagging in, in Houston and um we're in the ring cutting a promo after our match and all of a sudden a full Coke can like grazes right in front of us. Right? Like almost hits my nose. Right? Grazed right in front of us. When we turn over and there's like this sixteen year old girl who has just went eight shit and is throwing and cussing at us and stuff like that, and her dad actually had to to pick her up, security, <laughs> and they had to cart her out of the arena you know, the entire time. It was all because I called them gold, I think is what it was. Right? And like, it, it, it really, it like, we got to the back, and all the guys in Houston were like, What did you, I've ne- we've never seen a reaction. How did you guys get so much heat? And we go, well, That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. And just walked off. But like, yeah, there, there's always something crazy like that. One of my, um, another Poker Face story. Because I love Poker Face so much, <laughs> he loves me telling this story too. So Poker Face was wrestling a guy named Danny B Good, right? And Danny B Good was a black guy. For some reason, Danny carried nunchucks to the ring. No concernable reason why. I have no idea why Danny B carried nunchucks. Anyways, so he carries the nunchucks to the ring. They have their match, all boss, blah. Finish happens. Poker gets mad, takes the nunchucks, and like just throws them on the mat, right? Well, they hit the mat, they open up, and fly into the crowd, and hit a lady dead in the face, deep, like all up, right? And it so happened that it was actually a promoter from Kentucky, it was his wife, and he was there. And he, like, loses his shit and tries to come in the backstage area, and everybody stops him, like, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So we had a calm situation down, but then perfect faith ended up making it right with her i think he paid for her dental bills and stuff like that but i mean it was just it was one of those crazy situations like you never thought you'd see him press arrest. you know i didn't think i'd see numkut flying in the crowd
0: yeah it was like just the bad luck of having it exactly go that way (laughs) like
1: how unlikely and that's (laughs) that's what i tell people all the time it's like shit happens i understand that we we were trying to minimize that as much as possible like when i worked you know in vegas for the cat stuff you know I was working the monster, uh, the Tokyo Monster Cahagas at the CAC one year, and like you know, we're rolling outside the ring, and he goes to throw me into these chairs, and this is you know, this is at a casino, and they've got those really expensive, you know, wooden chairs, and me, the promoter, me goes, okay, be careful, (laughs) and like I just gently like roll through the through the stuff, so I didn't break anything, because I was like, I don't want to be the guy that breaks something and gets kicked out of here forever. Yeah.
0: Uh, when you're working with someone, what's the worst thing they could do in a match?
1: Um, I, I mean, we can say shoot, but I mean, I, I've never really had an issue. I've had to be stiff with people just to get them to listen sometimes, but eventually they come around. I think the main thing is just not letting me lead the dance. You know what I mean? Like, in most cases, 90% of the time, I call most of the match. Most of the time, I don't even. We walk and talk everything, you know what I mean? So, like, um, if someone told me, well, you know, no or something like that, I'd probably get kind of hot because I'm not, you know, I'm just trying to make a good match and, you know, I'm I'm not going to call anything crazy for someone to get hurt on, you know. So, um, really just that, that, that respect level right there.
0: When's the time you were legitimately surprised by someone in the ring? Uh, Maybe you had no idea, and your chemistry was like off the charts, and everything went perfect, or just you know someone just did something that you were like, "What the? I, I'm, I'm completely in awe right now."
1: So, um, me and Jay Lethal um, had a match in Arkansas, and like Jay, Jay didn't know me from you never heard of me before, never seen me blah blah, and like we went out there, and we had like really really good chemistry together. And, like, he told me after the match, he said, I was feeling it out there. He said, that was was really good. And he apparently, you know, I I got word, you know, years later that, like, he was in some locker room up east and, like, someone had said something about Tennessee and he put me over in front of the entire locker room up there. You know what I mean? So, like, stuff like that. Like, you know, just – he was super nice, obviously, and he was very giving in that match. We went back and forth For twenty minutes, you know, what I mean, he let me slap the shit at him at one point. <laughs> I mean, like stuff like that, and we, we just had him the entire time. It was a really, really, really good. one. Who, in your opinion,
0: has the hardest chops?
1: Uh, well, I don't take chops anymore because of my heart condition. But <laughs> the uh one of our guys named Brandon Ray, I've seen him light some guys up. He's 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 three hundred pounds. He's twenty two years old, and is He's just got this big ham hock hand. You know what I mean? And he just, he doesn't know his own strength. He's like a baby bull. You know what I mean? And like, he just, he'll, he'll light some guys up. And it's just, and you know, it's not really the top. It's like that, that thud sound. You know what I mean? Like, not yeah. the snap sound, but like the thud. You know what I mean? That, that's kind of the, the sound it makes when he does it. It's like, oh, it's, I just hurt for the guys when he does. It.
0: Uh, back in the day before you were a promoter, uh, has a booker stiffed you on money? And if so,
1: what are some fun excuses as to why? You know, I was never asked, I was never stiffed on a, on a payoff. It, it could be that I was super cheap, too. I mean, why, <laughs> why screw me out of 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever I was working for, you know, back in the day? But I've never been screwed on a payoff. Like, everyone's always been pretty fair with me. The only thing that's happened with me is stuff like, you know, promoters uh, overpromising stuff that never happened. You know, like I used to do this thing called the Golden Circle, you know, which is the interview segment. You know, uh, old school, and like they said, oh, we're gonna bring Roddy Piper in for you and do a Piper Spit slash Golden Circle. You know what I mean? Never, n- never happened. I mean, <laughs> it never was in, never was in the cards anyway. But I mean, like they just told me that to me, keep me on the hook, you know. But that's, it is what it is. I mean, that's just part of the business.
0: What's the hardest you've laughed at an indie show?
1: I tend I tend not to laugh. I tend to get mad when I see bad stuff. You know what I mean? Or like, so like, uh, okay. T- I, I will tell you a one. Tony, do you know Tony Gunn?
0: Tony Gunn. Tony Gunn
1: he's the, he. I think he's the OVW heavyweight champion. Okay. He 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 started in our area, right? So, um, he's having this feud, and uh, the guy he's having a feud with has this manager named Gentleman Jim Casey, and Jim Casey has a cane. Right? So fence is whatever gets disqualified. Here comes Jim Casey. Jim Casey's gonna gonna hit Tony Gunn in the face with this cane, right? Well he goes to hit Tony in the face and he gets hooked on the top rope and stops. But Tony still bumped. And it was like this far away. <laughs> right? And like I lost my shit. I was in the floor laughing so hard because it was so I couldn't I couldn't not laugh at that one. Even though, even though it completely hurt the business. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was about to
0: die on that one. You know, you see a lot of, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the gimmicks people have. You see a lot of gimmicks. What is the worst gimmick you've seen?
1: Uh, uh, just, I mean, anything that's nonsensical. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't mean, like, what's the chick on AEW? The Starlander, Star, Statlander. Chris, Chris Statlander? Yeah, like, I don't. To, to put over that you're actually from space, you know what I mean? Like, that that bothers. You. you know what I mean? Like, you could just say she thinks she's from space and play it off like she's nuts and that would be okay because there's actually people out there that, that think like that, right? But, like, for the announcers to go, oh, yeah, she's from the planet Uranac and, you know, whatever the fuck it is, you know, and trying to put it over like she's actually a space alien, you know, <laughs> it's just completely ridiculous to me. Like, so anything that's like that, you know what I mean, that's, that's completely nonsensical you know, same thing with, you know, the Orange Cassidy and, you know, shit like that. Like, all that stuff really bothers me. <laughs> so.
0: What are some uh, overused gimmicks in the indies nowadays?
1: Uh, I mean, it's pretty much the same as always. Everyone calls themselves the future. You know, everyone says, oh, this is my spotlight. You know, everyone says, um, you know, I'll, I'm the champion. We're going to do this on my time. You know what I mean? There's just certain things that are, they, they pass the point of their wrestling into, you know, they're, they're becoming past a, you know what I mean? So, like, you have to, you have to look at those trends and, and figure out what those are so you don't do them yourself, you know what I mean? Um, you know, a lot of people used to do the, the pass by spot, you know what I mean? That was a big thing a couple of years ago. I saw it every match, you know what I mean? Now I'm not seeing it as much as I used to. So mm. it, just, it just goes in spurts. In indie shows uh, you get
0: a lot of guys that either uh, were big names or are big names sometimes even when they were still working for a big company they come and they work for a show and you don't have to mention any names here if you don't want to but are there any guys who were quote unquote names that were on a show with you or that you worked against that thought they were bigger than the show acted like they were bigger than the show just really kind of rubbed you the wrong
1: way there's, there, there's been and, and unfortunately it's a lot of men you know what I mean uh, Unfortunately for some reason Those guys They're just Really hard to deal with You know what I mean Like I don't understand that. I think they think It's its still Whatever year And you know They're gonna lose their spot If they put someone over You know what mm. I mean they're, they're still so protective Of something that You know And then they're Then they ask for outrageous amounts of money On top of it too And it's like Well I'm not gonna book you To come in here And, and beat all my guys You know what I mean Like it's a little bit of Give and take You know what I mean Like help us out a little bit. If you help us out, we'll help you out. You know what I mean? So like any of the guys are like, the the one guy that's been really great is like a guy like downtown Bruno, who, you know, is still employed by WWE, but he comes into stuff for us every now and again. And he's just really super positive about everything and really wants to help guys. And, you know, he just wants to be part of the business. You know what I mean? But then there's some guys like, we won't name any names as we say, but um, there's just some guys that just, they're, they have a much bigger ego than they should. First of all, they weren't that very good in the ring to begin with. And then they're they're still milking promoters because they quote unquote have a nap.
2: Yeah.
0: I always found that like a lot of the guys, uh whenever they brought in big names, it was always the guys that never really fulfilled a certain amount of potential. Those are the guys that had more attitude than like actual stars. You know what I mean? Like every time like Bret Hart came, he was the nicest guy to every single person in the room. And it's like, honestly, he could just come and kind of phone it in and everyone would be okay with it because he's Bret Hart. But he was just super nice to every single person. Then you got some guys who like, you know, got kicked off of off WCW Nitro and then they never got picked up by the E and they show up and they have this fucking highfalutin attitude and you're like, okay, guy. Meanwhile... You you refuse to bump in the match because you're sucking in your gut the whole time. But whatever. Anyway, <laughs> not naming any names. Not <laughs>
1: naming.
0: But yeah. Um, all right. This is the last question. This is the touchy feely question of the podcast. This is your pure joy in wrestling. This is the thing either before, during, or after the match that gives you the goosebumps still to this day. The thing that makes you go fuck. This is why I love this business.
1: Um. And there's just been certain times, you know, with um you know, I was I was healed for fifteen years. <laughs> right. And I, I finally turned baby face uh, in, in Dyersburg and um it was just one of those things like I, I really wasn't sure, you know, how it was gonna go. And then all of a sudden, you know, people just started getting behind me. And like um, you know, I like I said, I lived in town, I've lived in Dyersburg, you know, this entire time. And I've been a wrestler the entire time and I would go, I would go around town and no one would talk to me when I was healed. You know what I mean? Like no one would put me over or come up to me or anything like that. But as soon as I turned baby face, I can't go anywhere in town now without someone coming up or a kid coming up and hugging my leg or, you know, something like that. You know, so to me, that's, that's one of the biggest things too, is like just the, the outpouring of support they have for what we're trying to do. You know, sometimes when I win a match, I'll, I'll pull a kid in the ring and we'll do my pose and, or maybe the Fargo strut or, you know, something like that. And when we do that kind of stuff, too, I, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, we've, we've been able to do it for kids that are going through tough times, too. You know, we've had kids that have lost a parent or, you know, have something horrific going on in their life. And if we just make them forget about whatever's going on in their life, so that that little moment or that little bit, you know, that that means the world to us, too. So.
0: Fantastic. I love it. Please, brother, put yourself over, put over the promotion, social media, websites, all that stuff.
1: Okay. So Pro Wrestling Mid South. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that good stuff. Um, I'm the Golden Boy Greg Anthony. You can like my page and things like that. I actually have a podcast of my own <laughs> called The Thirty Minute Minus Touch, uh, where we just I break down psychology, we'll pick one subject, and I just for thirty minutes I'll I'll dissect. No matter what the subject is, um, and that's on YouTube and Spotify and Breaker and, uh, and, and several things like that. Um, other than that, you know, just keep following uh, independent wrestling in general, and let's you know let's push the old school kind of stuff that a lot most people actually like, and let's get rid of all the garbage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you being on. Absolutely, thank you.